Welcome to the Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast where we discuss all things compounding and all things concerning independent pharmacy. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Delisio, North American Sales Director, and Sebastian Dennison, Clinical Compounding Pharmacist. Welcome, Compounding World, and welcome to the latest episode of A Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast. This is Mike Delisio, and as always, joined with Sebastian Dennison. We're back again, and we got a fantastic guest today. We do. We do. Um, someone who we are familiar with and someone who is definitely familiar in the industry, our own Vice President of Clinical Services, Dr. AJ Day. Hey, good to see you guys. It's good to uh, be welcome to the podcast and get a chance to speak with your audience as well. I know you've got such a booming audience since the last time we were able to speak together. Yeah, it's definitely booming. AJ, for, for one thing, uh, we wanted to have you back because it's been a while. I felt like in the beginning, when we first started, we used to have you on. Matt Martin would come on. There was always something to refresh our audience in the realm of the la- uh, regulatory landscape in compounding. And I, f- I feel like a lot has happened in the last year and a half, and a lot could potentially come um, down the horizon. We don't, we really don't know. And it's it's always good to give our listeners a really good sound regulatory update in terms of, you know, what is happening in the world outside of, you know, our own ecosystem and what should compounders be aware of? And I, and I do that in thought because, you know, there was a lot of changes to 795, uh, proposed changes to 800 um, and 797. And, you know, we always try to keep on top of the topic and we always want to make sure that our listeners are, you know, tuning into what is truly happening in the marketplace. I think the best thing to start off with is knowing that you haven't really been on the podcast in a while. What are some of the the key takeaways from 2021 and some of the things that, you know, our listeners should be aware of? And then we'll probably take the conversation from there. So you hit upon a few very important things in the world of compounding uh, related to uh, federal regulatory oversight of the industry and the standards by which we are um, we're generally practicing. Now, USP is not an enforcement body. They're a standard-setting organization. And so it's obviously up to the state boards of pharmacy to determine if they're going to adopt and enforce USP standards. So when USP put out the proposed revisions to Chapter 795 and 797, those were uh, received with a lot of um, curiosity from the compounding industry. And that did lead to many, many comments, more so than I believe USP has received in any other previous version of these two compounding chapters. And so through that process, there was uh, a request to remand the chapters back to uh, committee, and that was initially denied. And the there were some stakeholders in compounding who filed a formal petition with USP and eventually their request was granted and the chapters were remanded back to committee, meaning that USP was not able to make those effective. In your intro there, Mike, you also talked about USP chapter 800. USP 800 was not subject to this appeal and it was not remanded back to committee. So while USP is, um, you know, they went back to the drawing board, they, they put together some new proposed revisions to Uh, chapter 795 and and 797, chapter 800 is not part of that revision process. The open comment period has been extended on 
795-797 until March 17th. And again, that was from request from uh, some stakeholders in the industry. And guys, if you are not members of and supporting uh, your industry associations, namely the Alliance for Pharmacy Compounding, APC, NCPA, and APHA, I would strongly urge you to do so. APC is the Compounders Association. And of course, we know the importance of the Community Pharmacy Association and the American Pharmacists Association being respectively NCPA and APHA. Uh, these were the, the primary voices that submitted that request back to USP that during the pandemic and spanning the holidays, the uh, original deadline for comments in January uh, for the proposed revisions to 795 and 797 uh, did not seem to be adequate. And that even though it wasn't a, a longer comment period than USB typically grants, there was a need to um, coordinate uh, awareness about the implications of these chapters amongst uh, an audience larger than just pharmacy, right? All the other allied healthcare professionals who, who rely on compounding and what the implications are for their ability to care for patients if beyond use state changes are made, if some of the other, you know, um, conceptual changes uh, are implemented as, as originally proposed in this version of, of USP. So USP did grant that extension of the deadline. March 17th is now the deadline. So we need to make sure that uh, we're all, as, as an industry, aware of what the proposed uh, revisions state. And if you have any feedback for the committee um, to make sure that you submit those in writing directly to USP. And uh, myself and Matt Martin, were uh, featured in a PCCA webinar. Um, it's freely available to all PCCA members that kind of walks through what are those, excuse me, proposed changes in these chapters um, so that you get a high level overview of what those, those changes are. Back to 800. 800 is not part of this, um, this uh, rewrite, I guess. Um, so the chapters is the way that it was originally released many years ago. Um, however, USP has stated that because chapter 800 is not referenced directly in any other compendially act, uh, active chapters, that 800 itself is not compendially applicable. So um, until 795 and 797 are completed and these revised versions of those chapters point directly to 800, it is the USP's opinion that it is not a compendially applicable chapter. Now, again, they are not an enforcement body. So some state boards of pharmacy may have already referenced USP 800. They may already be expecting pharmacies to comply with that. That is your enforcement body. They have jurisdiction directly over your license to practice, right? So you need to make sure that you are in compliance with your state board's expectation, regardless of what USP says directly. That, that is a, the dis difference between the standard setting organization and your enforcement body. So USP, the uh, proposed revisions of the chapter and, and the extended uh, comment peri period are certainly some of the big uh, items that have uh, been kind of churning through the industry for <laughs> well over a year now. Um, in addition to that, in 2021, there was some activity from the FDA. Of course, we're still in a global pandemic. They are still conducting uh, inspections, investigations at pharmacies. And um, 
We saw those in 2021. Uh, some of you listening to this podcast may have received an inspection from the FDA. You may have received an, uh, a 483, a warning letter. So the, the agency has still been very active on that front. However, the overall volume of inspections does seem to be lower than it was pre-pandemic. And the agency has been pretty open about that. In fact, at this point in 2022, they have stated that they are um, pausing or uh, some of their non-urgent, non-emergency uh, domestic inspections of drug producing facilities. That doesn't mean that they're not doing any. Um, and again, I think some of you on that are listening to this podcast can verify for that. But we see that they're not up to full speed when it comes to the uh, inspection activity that we get from the agency. The FDA did host a pharmacy compounding advisory committee meeting in 2021. It was in June of 2021, and, and that was a big deal. In fact, they had a previous uh, PCAC meeting that they had convened was way back in 2018. So in all of 2019 and all of 2020, they did not have one. And in 2021, they did have one PCAC meeting and uh, a substance that is of great importance to many, many patients who rely on compounded medications is methylcobalamin. And that was on the agenda, um, along with melatonin. And those were the two that PCCA nominated. And then there were a, a few other items that were on the agenda as well. Just focusing on, uh, on melatonin and methylcobalamin, uh, because that's what PCCA nominated, and I can speak most intelligently about those, uh, the nomination that I submitted on melatonin, uh, FDA, when they came out with their, uh, their briefing packet in advance of the June PCAC meeting, stated that for the indications that I had proposed um, on behalf of PCCA members, that they, they did agree that it should be compounded for those purposes and for that patient need. So I opted not to utilize speaking time on melatonin and asked if they could uh, shift some of my minutes from melatonin to methylcobalamin. The FDA in their uh, assessment, there were multiple nominee, nominators for mel, uh, methylcobalamin and the FDA in assessing all of the different proposed uses was against uh, methylcobalamin for compounding. And the other nominators, um, decided not to participate in the actual PCAC meeting. So then we had the opportunity to keep the discussion focused on the patient population that, that we understand is most dependent on uh, compounded methylcobalamin. And we were able to convey our scientific data as well as pragmatic data alongside with some uh, experts in the field, physicians who live and breathe this stuff, and you know, even the ones who are publishing the predominance of the literature on the topic, as well as some of the pioneers of methylcobalamin uh, in patients with autism spectrum disorders. And so we were able to coordinate that we were all able to speak at the meeting. And uh, through that process, the advisory committee um, recommended to FDA in a nine to five vote that methylcobalamin should be available for compounding. So it's not real common that the PCAC, their advisory committee, uh, makes a recommendation that is against what the FDA's recommendation is. Um, this is an example where that happens. So we're really um, 
proud of the work that went into that to, to yield that. Again, it's a it's an advisory committee vote. It's non-binding. The FDA is not obligated to heed that advice. They still get to make their own decision, and they will review all of the data that was submitted um, prior to the meeting during that was discussed during the meeting, including my presentation and, and the physicians' presentations, uh, as well as any other information that the agency can review between the end of the meeting and whenever it is that they make their final decision. So. Again, we're talking. You asked a question about uh, 2021, and I feel like I've, I, I took that and went on to a bit, a bit of a soliloquy for, um, for a while. But uh, you know, these are some of the key uh, items that that come to memory for me. So, just to get clarity, AJ, before we jump to the next topic, um, in this non-binding vote by the committee about methacobalamin, where does that leave methacobalamin right now with respect to compounding? Because we've got to get clarity for anyone listening, because there's probably like a lot of people who've got like this cold pit of fear. So where are we on it today right now? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, so if we look at the process that led to the PCAC meeting, where does this all uh, fit together? So FDA has a set of, of rules, um, and, and this comes straight out of federal statute, DQSA section 503A. What are the, the items that you can utilize as an active pharmaceutical ingredient or as the uh, the actual statute states bulk drug substances um, in your compounded medications as a 503A. So if it's got a uh, USP NF monograph, you can use it. If it's a component of an FDA approved drug, you can use it as an API. And there are some caveats on both of those, um, of, of those conditions. For the USP NF monograph, it, the, the language in the statute is applicable. And so FDA says that if it's a monograph in the dietary supplements chapter of USP, then that monograph is not applicable as it pertains to 503A. It, it, related to a component of an FDA approved product, if you get into some of the sub definitions and links to the, of the statute, um, it goes on to further define it that it really needs to be the active drug in an FDA approved product. So just because it's an excipient in an FDA approved product, that doesn't mean you can use it as an API in a compound. Now, if neither of those first two conditions is met, so it's not a, it does not have an applicable in the eyes of FDA, USP or NF monograph, and it is not the active drug component of an FDA approved product, then it needs to appear on a list that the FDA is going to create. Um, oftentimes in the industry, that list is referred to as the positive list. Um, the more formal title off the top of my head, I believe, is the list of bulk drug substances that can be uh, lawfully compounded with under Section 503A of the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, uh, some variant of that title. Um, now, that list is not complete. So there is an, a fourth criteria, which is um, that there's an interim list that the FDA is creating while they evaluate all of the substances that have been nominated. So melatonin, coenzyme Q10, methylcobalamin, those appear on this interim list. Now that list is in uh, three different components, list one, list two, list three. It needs to be on list one. List one is, is where FDA has said, we have received these nominations and the nominations are thorough so that FDA can make a determination and we don't uh, feel that there is an uh, imminent threat to public safety. List two is all of those same things about list one, except 
we have a concern about safety. There, there, there seems to be a potentially imminent threat to public safety. So even though we have all the nomination material and we haven't finalized that, that what we'll, for this podcast, refer to as the positive list, we're going to say you cannot compound those. So there's a handful of items that are on list two. And list three is um, you can't compound it either, but it's because the nomination was generally incomplete for FDA to make a thorough evaluation. So methacobalamin is on list one. It can be compounded. Um, all of the materials that FDA has re reviewed um, go into their decision to place items on list one. Now, there's another component to um, DQSA, and that is that the manufacturer of these materials that are considered APIs, that, that manufacturer has to have it listed with the FDA. So the FDA has it registered as an API, right? And so um, PCCA's methylcobalamin, as an example, meets all of those criteria. So to, to boil that down, we can still continue compounding with it as long as you've got a valid supplier that's got to register with the FDA and you're following the guidelines to which you should be compounding it. That's it. So we're right. still okay on that one. All right. Um, I know that there's a lot to unpack there. So um, there was a couple of other things that also moved that you didn't touch upon. I believe that we also wanted to talk about a memorandum of understanding. Um, that's a really big topic. And a lot of people have questions about that. I, we get those questions uh, all the time in clinical services. So could you give us like a brief history and then uh, a current update where we are in that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, you're right. This is a this is a big deal deal for a lot of compounders. Um, as a refresher, the memorandum of understanding or the MOU is another component of that federal statute. Section 503A does require that the FDA has to create a memorandum of understanding, and uh, the states need to enter into that MOU to address interstate distribution of compounded drugs. And if the state does not, then the pharmacies within that state are going to be limited to 5% of interstate distributions of compounded drugs. And if the, uh, there, there's, there's no stipulation of what happens if the uh, state does enter the, the memorandum. Essentially, the, the MOU is an agreement between the federal government and the state regulatory agency, in, in this case, the Board of Pharmacy, that says, you know, we're going to communicate and we're going to um, understand that the responsibilities are split here, and here's how we're going to work together. So this MOU is part of the original iteration of DQSA. Uh, before it was the DQSA, when it was an update to the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act um, back in 1996, and Congress first put that language in there. And so fast forward to 2013, when they passed DQSA, they resurrected that language from the late 90s uh, and removed the unconstitutional restriction on free speech, um, which if you've got questions about, we can of course talk about, but again, it's more than 20 years old. So I don't know that it's uh, worth uh, occupying a lot of time for your listeners right now. Um, and so that MOU language um, was maintained in, into DQSA. So. FDA has been working for a long time to put together an MOU that would be palatable and that, that boards of pharmacy would sign on to. That's ultimately the goal, is that they need the boards to accept this and to make these agreements so that overall the, their, their concern as an agency is that they want to see um, that reasonable oversight is happening and that the drug supply is safe, right? Ostensibly, that's, that's the shared goal that, that we've all got. And so over... The course of many years, they've put out different drafts of the MOU, 
and for various reasons, uh, comments that were provided back to the agency from boards of pharmacy, NABP, other stakeholders, the compounding community, the FDA has gone back and, and made uh, revisions uh, to these different drafts of the MOU. They put out a final MOU and that was in 2020 and it was to go into effect in October of 2021. There was a lot of pushback from the uh, compounding community. A lot of the comments that had been submitted previously uh, did not seem to be addressed to the satisfaction of stakeholders. And there was a group of a handful of pharmacies that filed a lawsuit against the FDA. And uh, ultimately, the federal judge who was overseeing this um, remanded the, uh, the MOU back to the FDA saying that you need to go back and address some of these, these issues. And some of that had to do with the procedural um, items that were, that were brought up in the lawsuit. Was FDA going about rulemaking in the appropriate way? So the FDA currently is uh, within a, a, an extended time period that the judge had given them to uh, reevaluate some of those procedural components and, and other details within the MOU. And hopefully within the next few weeks, we should, uh, we should get some information back from the agency that will go to the judge. I don't say we as in they're going to publish it directly to the compounding industry. If this is all part of the, the court process, it'll go back to the federal judge and the, um, the plaintiffs in the case will, will hear that along with their lawyers and the judge, and uh, we'll learn what the next steps are. Um, I think for the industry, it was a significant battle. It was a significant concern that the MOU was going to go into effect in October of last year with some pretty concerning uh, limitations. And a big part of that is this, this extension, not extension, but the, the, the remanding the MOU back to the FDA happened pretty close, le le less than 90 days from when the MOU was set to go into effect. And at the time, I believe only two boards of pharmacy had, had signed on to the MOU, which means that every other state would have been limiting the pharmacies in those states just 5%. And there's a lot of pharmacies who specialize in a particular therapy. And if you specialize in a particular therapy, you've made the investment for that patient population to study formulations, to streamline your process, to be familiar with all of the risks and benefits that your patients might encounter, and all of the ancillary medications and so on. And so all the things that we do as pharmacists and particularly as compounding pharmacists to then say that, well, you can't take care of that patient, even though you're the best to, to do it based off of your level of expertise, because you've already gotten 5% of patients that are out of state from your home resident state. That, that's a concern. That's a patient access concern. So I, I think it's, it's um, really important that everybody understands the implications of the MOU. And also, not everybody does business in multiple states, right? Many, 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 many pharmacies, most pharmacies take care of patients primarily in their home states. And, uh, you know, they might think of that 5% as acceptable. Um, and, and in many cases, it is. There are a number of patients who do rely on, on these types of specialty uh, compounded medications that come from out of states where licensure requirements are met and all the other components are met. It's just now this, this seemingly arbitrary limitation to 5% if the state doesn't agree to, uh, 
to other mandates from the federal from the federal side. So you know, there's there's business models uh, discussions that have come up through this debate. There's the um, the opportunity. You know, if you if you if your business evolves to a point where now you need to take care of patients who are who reside elsewhere, what are the implications for how you're able to do that? There, there, there's a lot of different components that come into the discussion there. Well, AJ, that was obviously a really well-rounded answer probably to the first question that I asked. Let's, let's take a retrospective review over the last 18 months. What came to my mind as well was having Scott Brenner from the APC uh, group, and he, he was obviously on the podcast and shared a lot of what you had echoed as well. And I know a lot of this is near and dear to you because it's a lot of the work that you've put in behind the scenes for the industry. Um, and then I think of, you know, NCPA's role. And it's been great to have such amazing partners and them also coming on the podcast. In regards to a lot of what you shared, one thing that also resonated with me was discussing, you know, being in a global pandemic and um, having federal agencies potentially still conduct inspections. And, you know, what that looks like um, in 2022. And obviously knowing that we have large exposure to many of our members who have gone through um, inspections for various reasons. Maybe you can shed some light in terms of what they've been encountering, some common themes and, and items that you know are truly applicable to the entire industry as it pertains to community pharmacy. You know, it's a great question. Um, and Mike, the items that we're seeing as focal points from inspectors are not particularly surprising for the most part. I think that the most important thing for every pharmacist to be paying attention to is FDA's final guidance on insanitary conditions in compounding facilities. This is, on, on the surface, some people look at it and think that it's really an issue about sterile compounding. Say, well, I'm not doing sterile compounding. I don't have a clean room. I'm not worried about 797. That guidance document is not isolated to sterile compounding. There's a lot of stuff in there that does pertain only to sterile, but there's a lot that is non-sterile also. So make sure that you're looking at that as a template to guide you, to get you into the mindset of how you need to be looking for potential issues in your own facility. When you look at you know, a, 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 an easy example to look at is any FDA issued 483 that they publish online because it helps you understand what types of issues the FDA seems to be prioritizing in terms of their written observations. And so that the, the quality of the supplies in your, in your compounding lab, and I don't just mean the components that go into your formulations, I mean everything. Are you dealing with hot plates that have a stain because you were mixing a formulation on it whenever in the past and it's it left a stain or, or a residue on your piece of equipment right that is a component of your lab that needs to be addressed because we need to make sure that there is no potential for that to create a contamination into something else that might be into a, a future preparation the way that you clean your hood making sure that there's no dust or or other um, you know, powder residues that are in nooks and crannies and um, articulating pieces of your powder containment hood or your CVE, making sure that your filters are maintained, making sure that you're using the correct types of materials and, and cleaning agents to keep a 
a clean environment. Non-sterile, and this, this is a line from Dr. Ross Caputo over at Eagle Analytical, um, non-sterile does not mean dirty. There's still concern over contamination uh, due to the materials you're using or even due, due to the environment. So making sure that your operational focus is um, first and foremost about the safety and quality of, of what's happening in the lab, right? We can make a call out back to USP 800 because quite frankly, there's a lot of stuff that is mentioned in the FDA's insanitary conditions guidance that is similar to USP 800 um, about how you handle um, highly potent medications, i.e. hormones um, with dedicated equipment and how you clean and de decontaminate and, and deactivate some of those agents. The focus from insanitary conditions is on, on the quality of your product and making sure that your facility is of, of uh, suitable operational condition to make sure that you don't have cross-contamination and, and other forms of, of uh, uh, poor quality practice. From a USP 800, that's more about a personnel safety. But the principle and, or what they're asking you to do to achieve those is very similar, right? So there is overlap there. So even though you know USP says 800 is not compendially, excuse me, compendially applicable at this time, and your state board might not take the stance to adopt USP 800, some of those same principles you're going to see um, being applied by FDA through this insanitary conditions um, uh, mindset, which I think is very important for everybody to understand. Um, and, you know, I, I mentioned hormones there for a moment. I want to I want to expand on hormones, even though you didn't ask about it. <laughs> um, the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, or NASM, put out a report in uh, July 2020, and this was something that they've been working on for uh, about almost two years prior to that. And I think we've talked about this on the podcast in the past. Um, they had two different reports that were. Um, that were going forward concurrently. One had to do with um, pain management, compounded topical pain management, and the other had to do with compounded hormone therapy. Uh, I want to talk about the hormone report. This is something else that the industry has, and, and, and when I say the industry, I'm talking about various stakeholders uh, that rely on compounded hormones for patient care. Um, that the, the industry stakeholders have been working on um, even prior to the release of the report, but once the report was made publicly available and you could see what their, what specific items the committee members um, published in that report, the industry has been um, very concerned about that and, and the viewpoint that the authors and editors of that report took. So there has been a lot of activity on that. Again, it's something that I would highly encourage all stakeholders to be involved with. Um, APC, again, is the, the leader in this effort. Um, you can go to compounding.com and find out some more information. You can go to the A4PC, um, Alliance for Pharmacy Compounding, uh, a4pc.org website and get more information. They're, they're doing an entire media campaign to raise awareness about this issue. In 2021, they raised over a million and a half dollars to fund the media campaign so that patients and, and physicians and all other allied healthcare professionals um, can be aware of the threat to compounded hormones because the recommendations coming from that NASM report would uh, essentially eliminate compounded hormones. Um, so there, there's a significant issue there. So there's an awareness, you know, what, what does this mean to you 
the non-pharmacists who might uh, rely on or have a loved one who relies on or a patient who relies on uh, a compounded hormone therapy for a variety of reasons and uh, help, help elicit what those reasons are. Let's help communicate what those are. Um, there's, there's a lot more to be done. And so while they're working on the, the public awareness side of it, um, there's been a lot of activity to work on the scientific side of it, addressing the specific scientific deficiencies that were raised in the NASM report. Now, conducting large-scale double-blind placebo-controlled trials of the scale and scope that you would conventionally see in an FDA-approved hormone product is not financially feasible. Um, and there's a reason that compounded hormones or compounded therapies overall have exemptions from some of the uh, recommendations that NASM committee um, put forth. However, there is still an opportunity to generate and address some of the, um, the scientific arguments that were put forth. So seeking to generate that data and get them published in, uh, in peer-reviewed journals that, that address the issues of this audience of, of primarily physicians in women's health has been a, another huge undertaking from us here at PCCA, as well as uh, other uh, you know, partners out in the field, community pharmacy owners who specialize in this therapy. And, and, and it's an ongoing effort. And for uh, any of our colleagues who are out there listening to this podcast, and, and this is something you'd like to learn more about to find out how you can get involved, please feel free to reach out to me directly or contact the PCCA science team. And, and we can talk to you about some of the different efforts and, and ways that you can be involved as well. It's amazing, AJ, because when we talk about regulatory, everyone kind of goes, oh, this is so time consuming and it's kind of not exciting. But having listened to you for like just the last few minutes, I'm like, it's moving at lightning speed and it almost feels like a Cold War novel, like the, the intrigue and the, uh, and the government involvement. So it's, it's actually moving very rapidly in our world. And yes, you're right. We have to be involved. We have to have advocates and we also have to have more voices in the choir, so to speak. So thank you. This is this is a great sort of starting point for the discussion to bring people up to speed. Well, it is it is a pleasure um, to to get to work with with you and, and all of the compounders in our community about this, as well as with with the agency. I think there's a lot of opportunity for um, education. You know, there's a lot of stuff that the agency does or that they have concerns about that we didn't necessarily think of, and vice versa. There's a lot that that we do out of necessity and out of perspective that the agency may not be aware of. So the, the opportunity to, to share our knowledge and to educate each other is, is really wonderful. And, you know, we all want safety in our medication supply and in our food supply and, and clean water and, you know, all these different things that, that the agency is responsible for and different federal agencies for, for all sorts of different things. At the same time, there are, patient needs, right? There are needs that, um, that mass manufactured drugs can't address, that, that conventional manufacturing cap uh, capacity can't address. And that's where skilled and, um, and, and thoughtful pharmacists that are abiding by reasonable regulations and, and standards of practice and clinical, clinical decision-making processes um, can work with the prescribing physicians and the patients in need to provide solutions. And that, that's what we're trying to help find 
that middle ground and, and where um, we can address all of those types of concerns that come up from the regulatory perspective, the clinical perspective, the, the patient tolerability perspective, and the pharmaceutical perspective as well, right? <clears throat> That's awesome, AJ. You know, one thing I always think of is our audience, whether they're experienced compounders or whether they're pharmacists that are, you know, about to enter this journey and really have no clue what's going on in the market. I think this episode specifically will give them a really great recap in terms of what is important, what they need to know, um, and, and really what direction we're heading. But there's a lot of positive and there is a lot of wins more recently as well. And, and I think this is a really good thing for the market. And, you know, we just want to get the word out. And I think this is just another channel for us and another means of communication to the marketplace. But, you know, just kudos to you. Kudos to the group at APC for, for all the great things that they have done. And, you know, overall, um, I think we're in a really solid space. And it, it just sounds like we always make great progressions and strides. And overall, it's, it's been a, a really great way for us to even get caught up and, and have a better understanding of what direction we're heading. Well, I appreciate being invited to uh, to speak with you and your your group here. Um, as always, we we love to serve. So, however, we can be of uh, additional resource to to the compounders out there. Never hesitate to call and ask. You'll be back. <laughs> Do we have a uh, a page on our website that we can put people in contact with AJ? Absolutely. Um, the public affairs page, you, you can get to it directly at pccrx.com forward slash public affairs. It's accessible as a link directly through the members only website after you've logged in through the portal. Um, you can also email public affairs at pccarx.com. Yeah, that's a great reminder. We always talk about our social media, but on our website, finding the correct hyperlinks on, on the public portal will definitely point in the right direction and go to, um, I would say, a, a very significant group of individuals who have responsibility uh, from the public affairs department, AJ being one of them. So if you do have any questions, something that you heard may have uh, had a concern with or would like to learn more, definitely reach out to public affairs at pccarx.com or, as AJ mentioned, visiting through the public portal at pccarx.com forward slash public affairs. But AJ, thanks again. I know you'll be back. Uh, in some capacity, maybe to a similar topic or maybe something completely different. But you're more than welcome here whenever you wish. We'll always have fun. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, Sebs. Thank you, AJ. On behalf of everybody out there, thank you so much for listening to this episode as well. And as always, if you would like to follow us along on social media, we're definitely President PCCRX on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram. I almost forgot Facebook, but um, as always, Spotify. We should be on Spotify. We we are on Spotify, so you can listen to us on Spotify. Don't forget to favorite so you don't miss an episode. Until next time, this is Mike Delicio, and thanks again for listening. Mm -hmm.